every time there's an economic rift between Europe and America, that means that those two trusted allies are not working together to commonly tackle Chinese economic abuse. I think this administration and President Biden personally is very much attached to Europe. But when you look at the situation today, there is indeed a desynchronization. In an interview with CBS's 60 Minutes, President Emmanuel Macron highlighted the growing tension in the transatlantic relationship as the United States and Europe rift apart in a number of areas, such as economics and energy. The EU has raised concerns that the Inflation Reduction Act a major package of legislation signed into law by President Biden earlier this year will severely damage European industry for its use of subsidies and tax credits to promote manufacturing in the US. The dispute was at the core of discussions between the US and France between President Macron's state visit to the United States last week. Another area of disconnect relates to the differing approaches of the EU and US towards China. While the US views China as a threat, European countries have a more dovish approach, favouring cooperation to competition. This was underscored by the recent visits of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and European Council President Charles Michel to Beijing to meet with the Chinese President Xi Jinping. Both visits were criticised by China hawks, given their proximity to the party congress where President Xi was enshrined for another five years, becoming its most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. This week, in a bonus episode, Julian, Jorge and myself discuss the fractious state of US-EU trade relations as well as the diverging approaches to China. If you would like to support the podcast, please rate and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support us on Patreon, which helps us pay for the equipment we use to record and edit the podcast. You can send us your comments or questions either on Twitter and Common Decency Sorry, on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. We hope you enjoy this episode. Jorge and Julian, as always, it's a pleasure to be with all of you. And uh, we've got quite a lot on our plate today, um, starting with the trip, um, Macron's trip to DC and also to New Orleans which was quite uh, quite eventful. There's a lot of memes that came out of it, including Macron holding a baguette as it just got included in the uh, UNESCO World Heritage. The baguette is now part of the UNESCO World Heritage. It's that formidable. Um, but amid all the memes and, and, the, and the good photo ops, um, it was quite substantial as well because the transatlantic relationship, not just between France and America, but more generally between the EU and America, what is quite strong on, on, on defence and on the Ukraine war as it's going on, there's been a lot of brewing tensions on the issue of trade. And when we talk about trade, the question of China isn't too far away. Um, and the casus belli, so to speak, between the EU and um, America of late has been a very important and maybe controversial bill that uh, Joe Biden has been the fervent defender of. It's the so-called IRA. Now, if you've just listened to our podcast episode on Ireland, do not worry, we're not going to talk about that IRA. We'll be talking about a bill called the IRA. But June, can you kind of walk us through what the IRA looks like and why it's relevant to Macron's trip to DC? 
So as a Brit, I refuse on principle to call it the IRA. So I'm going to call it the Inflation <laughs> Reduction Act. Uh, it's full name. So the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law this year, uh, has two big components. The main things it has a lot of tax increases domestically so that it is budgetary neutral. So it has a surplus, which is the reason mm. it passed in the US Congress. Um, but the main thing that it has that has annoyed uh, Europeans is that it also provides a lot of subsidies in with Buy American provisions. And what these mm-hmm. mean in the sense, and the big one that's gotten the most traction is on electric vehicles, is that companies making electric cars uh, need to use components that are made in America or made by American companies. So it's offering preferential subsidies and tax breaks for companies that are based in the US to build sort of these critical technologies of the of the 21st century. That's the broad overview of the Inflation Reduction Act. And obviously the reason why Europeans are in arms about it is because they feel it's a kind of naked act of protectionism to defend their EV industry, electric vehicle industry, and that it is kind of very uncompetitive behavior. Um, you know, this is the kind of thing that in theory could be brought up in front of the um, WTO um, for kind of excessive protection on the domestic market using protectionist um, measures. Now, obviously, you know, it's not it's not like the good old tariffs, which are quite easy to 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 kind of spot out. It's kind of more um, it's 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 a bit it's a bit trickier than all those good tariffs. But um, the reason the reason especially there was so much tension is there's a feeling in Europe that, first of all, Europe is in a tense economic situation in a way that America isn't, uh, given it's being hit a lot harder by the energy crisis. But there's also been all this kind of very rosy rhetoric coming from the Democrats after Trump's uh, defeat, saying, you know, America is back. We won't, we won't treat the allies in the same way that, that Trump did before. And also, by the way, we need you on China. And so when the IRA comes, sorry, the Inflation Reduction Act comes, there's a distinct feeling that America is not treating its allies the right way. Now, the Americans then respond quite, quite smart, smartly saying, well, you know, you guys have been complaining that we didn't do enough on, on, sorry, on, the, on, on the climate for, for decades. And now we are acting, guys are complaining. Um, but yeah, what exactly, what exactly um, can be done to change the Inflation Reduction Act at the moment? Because my understanding is, and you're, you're the expert, you're our man in Washington, Julian, but my understanding is the bill is not going to go back because the, the House is now held by Republicans, which will make the entire thing very tricky. So to what extent can actually, um, no, even you know, as chummy as Biden and Macron look together, can substantially things be done to make sure the Europeans feel a little less aggrieved by the entire uh, process no uh is the short answer um that, <laughs> thank you this is a bit of a podcast <laughs> uh it was a great dinner but nothing's going to change um the the thing that needs to be that people need to remember when it comes to the inflation reduction act is it's bringing a lot of manufacturing jobs into the united states and in particular into a lot of areas that are battleground states politically a lot of yep. u.s domestic policy is geared towards elections the presidential election is coming up in 2024 President Biden ran on an economic mandate that emphasized industrial policy and bringing manufacturing jobs back to the US. The Inflation Reduction Act, as well as some other domestic legislation that I'm sure we'll talk about later on, um, is going to do that, or at least that's the the intended effect of the bill and what is expected to happen. And we're starting to see some commitments from companies in line with that. So the bill is doing what it's intended to do. And from a political Mm. perspective, you can't change it to sort of make it 
much softer for Europeans, that's how you lose votes and potentially the presidency if you're in the Biden administration. There are tweaks, as President Biden insinuated, that could be made. And so without being too technical about it, the bill provides money and funds, but those funds are to be dispersed by the Treasury Department. And there's a bit of latitude for the Treasury Department to define who would get those funds. So you could see uh, an adjustment in the language in terms of how the Treasury sets out rules for subsidies and tax credits um, that is a bit more lenient towards allies or countries. This is the suggestion that's been put out by some uh, trade policy experts in Washington to countries that have a trade deal, um, which is actually part of the uh, one of the bits of text in, in the IRA. Oh, gosh, now I'm saying it. Um, that would open it but, up to But crucially, crucially um, the EU does not have a trade deal with America, as surprising as it might sound. We no, have a trade it doesn't deal. have a trade deal. Yeah but it does have a trade agreement and there are mm-hmm. other trade agreements. So then it becomes a definition of what is a trade agreement. So does the U S yeah. bilateral with Japan count as a trade trade agreement? Um, obviously South Korea has one. And this is the other thing that I would just point out is that any adjustment or concession made to Europe would also be, have to be made to allies in Asia, principally Japan, yeah. South Korea, uh, but also Vietnam as well. So there, there's a, there are a lot of considerations to it. So you might see some light flexibility in terms of how the law is applied, but substantively, it's not going to get changed. If Europe wanted this bill to be more forgiving towards its own industrial policy objectives, the time to engage and intervene was in the spring of this year, in the summer of this year, and the person to call was Joe Manchin, not Joe Biden. Um, but mm. those negotiations were so tightly wound up in domestic politics that uh, any country trying to sort of get their foot in the door didn't really have a hope. Um, Jorge, I'm just interested because, you know, I, I, I saw this from a French perspective and the French journalists weren't too sure, no, maybe they didn't have this kind of technical know-how, but they weren't too sure how to react to this. There's a little bit of scepticism saying, well, not much is going to happen. But... Has there been, like, from, from, from Spain, from Madrid, from the rest of Europe, from your, your contacts all over Europe, what is the kind of feeling that you got over the past few weeks? You know, Did it feel like you know, one of those uh, lost causes that Macron loves to chase, or did you feel like there was a lot of coverage and a lot of interest for the issue? Well, what, I've, what I seem to have perceived from the coverage of this bill on our side of the pond is that once more, this is yet again another instance of transatlantic allies uh, talking about free markets, not walking the walk about free markets. Uh, we have covered this issue extensively, Francois, you and I. Um, you know, we've we covered uh, some of the. Uh, well, let me let me try to categorize some of the uh, issues that we've covered that that fall under this this uh, this uh, noxious sort of practice. Um, obviously. Um, in, in the in the in the realm of defense, uh, you know, um, America constantly um, uh, bangers on that Europe should be spending more on its own defense, but it re- but it is it it opposes that spending when it goes into European defense firms through the PESCO program. That is an issue that was raised by Benjamin Haddad in our very first launch episode. Uh, let me give you another example. Uh, we've also um, um, there was also obviously the, the the episode that we titled "Friendly Economic Fire" with Laurent Tanuji and uh, uh, Frédéric Kirucci, uh, which was essentially about economic uh, sort of 
uh, war, economic warfare, really, uh, uh, that was um, uh, that was uh, that was uh, carried out through the uh, through America's uh, anti money laundering legislation that ended up uh, being applied extraterritorially. But what, what I guess the point I'm trying to make is that you know when it comes to upholding free markets and sort of free trade, both America and Europe are very eager to talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk uh, with regards to one another. They're both heavily subsidizing their uh, ch- uh, their uh, cherry-picked industries. They're both uh, even, even. I mean, you, you made a very important distinction, Francois, between tariff and non-tariff barriers, right? But even on the tariff side, uh, uh, Europe slaps onerous tariffs on American cars, um, and so does America uh, inversely, I, I believe. And th- that's, that's, that's just to pick one sector. I think broadly, the truth is that uh, we don't have uh, as, free tr- as, uh, as free a trade as, as we would like it to have between America and in Europe. And I think the IRA was just to uh, give us just a measure of how, uh, how deep that uh, aversion to free trade runs. Just one thing before we move on. Um, you mentioned an episode we, do, we did, which I highly recommend. It didn't do quite as well as other episodes, but I think it's, it's one of the most interesting stories you ever hear. Um, whether you, you, know, you, you agree with the conclusions the man drew, it's the episode 17, Friendly Economic Fire, with Frédéric Pierucci, which talks about his incredible story about this man being a, uh, a top executive in a French uh, energy company, being arrested while landing in New York and being treated essentially like an economic hostage while there was kind of a very high level pressure pressure going on on the French uh, energy company Alstom. It's it's a terrifying and fascinating story and you can draw the conclusions that you want out of it. Um, but I definitely recommend episode 17, Friendly Economic Fire. But moving on, and I think what Jorge is pointing out is something which is very true. Obviously, in this kind of negotiations, there's always... No, each side is accusing each other of hypocrisy, saying, well, you guys are say, saying this, but you're actually doing this. And that happens all the time. But I think something which is, which is kind of very interesting is um, Europe does not have a bi-European act. And so in many ways, it's actually kind of playing with a hand behind its back because it's not able of punching back in the same way that America has. So all of a sudden now we are talking about these things happening in, in, in Europe. Um, but what's so interesting, I think, is the reason why it's so complicated for Europe to be able to have this kind of protectionist measures to punch back is that Europe is a much more complex patchwork. It takes a lot more. I mean, Congress is complicated. Don't, don't, no, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but the Europe is so complicated. And the reason why we don't want to kind of, you know, cheat a little, a little bit more to create industrial giants and, and give kind of state supports for all of that is because that means, you know, smaller countries in, in the Baltic countries or the Scandinavian countries or in Central Europe are terrified this means big European champions, which would only be, you know, German champions or French champions. And so as a result of this kind of complex political reality, Europe doesn't quite have the same toolbox as, as America does. Uh, Julian, I can see you fuming. Um, please, please punch back. Well, I, I just don't think that trying to... That part of what I don't understand about the European objection to this is that Europe is not the United States and trying to mimic American policy mm. is just pointless. The United States can do buy American provisions. It can source manufacturing in its country because unlike Europe, the United States is 
bounteous with natural resources. Um, its next door neighbor, Canada, mm. is one of the most natural resource rich countries on the planet. The United States itself is the mm. largest oil producer on the planet. Um, so it can afford in terms of energy to actually finance large industrial projects and manufacturing. Europe can't. Its biggest suppliers um, in its periphery are Russia, not a reliable actor, and Norway, which is frankly too small to supply the entire European industrial continent. So it's a, in case of when I'm looking at Europe and its approach to this, and you know, some people are talking for you know, a European industrial strategy and a bi-European prospect, they just need to rethink about why their economy is the way it is um, and think about the future rather than trying to mimic a policy um, that the United States has adjusted. And then the last thing I'll just add is the, the EU can't afford to get into a trade war or a subsidy war with the United States. Its capital markets aren't deep enough. It's just simply not rich enough to, to be able to compete with the US mm. on this scale. So I think they should look at different ways to, to cooperate and to make the EU its own um, economic hub. But I don't think mimicking the US policy or trying to water down US policy is the way to go. Well, um, I guess... Um, Cole, hey, go ahead. I guess I, I just wanted to reiterate uh, the point and I, and I want to draw um, I'll, I'll reiterate the point first and then I'll draw a, a, a parallel um, I think again the truth the truth of it is that um, market rigging practices are uh, are um, are par for the course they are even in this even in those states that proclaim free market principles you you will have market rigging practices you will have states buttering up uh, favorite industries with generous subsidies. I mean, this is, we don't live in Hayek's uh, ideal world, a world of no subsidies, a world of no trade barriers, a, a world of no state aid. That, yeah. is, that is not the world we live in. We live in a world where states compete against one another. And as part of that competition, they, they do lavish uh, great sums of money to uh, prop up uh, they are favored industries in in the race uh, in the global race or the global competition. Um, something else that I wanted to highlight is Francois. You and I have for for a while now we've been trying to get on the show um, Anu Bradford, Bradford, who is one of the most uh, lucid analysts of uh, just yeah. precisely this phenomenon, and she claims that that you know actually the EU is very. Mm -hmm. Uh, very uh, skilled at exporting its rules worldwide. When you think of, for instance, when, when the EU passed its privacy law in, uh, I believe it was 2019, that law was immediately implemented by companies operating in California because the EU is such a vast market that the laws governing that market end up being implemented by companies that want to save costs by applying, by, by complying with one rule only. So they, so you, you had companies, and this was actually rolled out across America by many firms that ended up implementing this law that had been passed in, in the EU. And I think, and I think understandably, you, you have some of this pushback in America by companies oh. and individuals who say, why, I mean, why is the EU sovereign over our yeah. privacy rules. Why should why are our companies and the reality is that yeah. it makes market yeah. sense to do so. Yeah, uh, we would love to have her. She very smart book, you know, the idea that kind of um, the EU perhaps even stumbled in that position of surprising leadership for its market power 
is a very interesting case. But we'd love to have her on. But I was just, I was just imagining, um, as you were talking about Hayek, I was imagining um, Friedrich Hayek from, from heaven uh, crying out and singing John Lennon songs, Imagine There's No Tariffs. Um, uh, <laughs> I was imagining something along those lines. But And this is, you know, I think Jude makes a good point saying, the EU can't afford to go into tra- a trade war with, with America, and that's perhaps the case. Um, but the issue is, it's creating a lot of ill will between between America and, and the EU. And at some point, at some point, you know, the, despite all the divisions of Europe, at some point, people say, well, we can't be treated like that. Uh, on paper, we are allies. And, and I'm going to quote someone um, who was quoted in Politico. It's a trade diplomat, EU trade diplomat. Um, talking about the trade of the tensions over the electric car subsidies, saying with these kind of allies, who needs enemies? Um, uh, so, I mean, understandably, he's you know he's a trade negotiator. He's been quite angry by uh, frustrated by what's going on and you know siloed on his one topic. But I think it reflects a kind of larger narrative, and this is kind of uh, a pivot, a slight pivot to China, which is. Um, when Trump was lost the election in 2020, despite what he said, he lost the election. Despite no, when Trump lost the election in 2020, um, there was this a, a feeling in Brussels that okay, we are back to some kind of normal, and we are now going to be dealing with someone who's going to respect us and treat us as allies. Now we don't get the angry 6 a.m. tweets from Trump anymore, as funny as they were. And as noxious as they were on the transatlantic relationship, but nonetheless, and you know, there's also the conversation about AUKUS going on, the way that uh, America treated um, uh, Europeans who couldn't go back to America and see their spouses sometimes because of of, of COVID. It's going to be kind of a long backlog of issues, which has created a lot of tension on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think that's part of the issue because I remember when Trump lost, and it was quite clear the Democrats would, you know, keep up the mantle at least partially on um, Trump's strategy to put pressure on China, a lot of the analysis was Trump couldn't put maximum pressure on China because he was going alone. sorry, And this is where the kind of protectionist part of Trump's agenda and the anti-China parts of his agenda kind of clashed because he wanted to protect the American market, which means creating tension with Europe, which means not being able to create that goodwill when you wanted the Europeans to be in your crusade against China. Um, and I think to some extent we are seeing something a little similar here, which is uh, obviously there's none of the bravado of Trump, but there's a lot of tensions and Europeans don't feel respected. And now, obviously, the Americans will also push back saying, um, you know, uh, the Europeans are, are playing ball with us on China, you know, either way. Uh, they, they, you know, look at what uh, we'll talk talk about it later. But you know, the recent trip by Charles Michel and, and Olaf Scholz uh, kind of reflect the idea that the EU isn't quite on the same page as America on China. But if you if you kind of create all those unnecessary tensions, or maybe necessary tensions, as students Julian explained the political importance of the IRA, um, then you reach a situation where it's becoming increasingly difficult for Europe and America to have a a uh how could i call that a, a peaceful conversation maybe on china um yeah yeah Jorge. no and i think this is you're absolutely right to draw uh the attention uh to the uh, lost opportunity uh that this bill represents uh i mean make no mistake about this china is opening the champagne when they hurt the news of this bill being passed 
every time there's an economic rift between Europe and America, that means that those two trusted allies are not working together to commonly tackle Chinese economic abuse. And we have we have covered some of this in this on this show. We have we have an, an, an episode, Francois, you probably remember uh, uh, what uh, number off the top of your of, of your head, but we did an episode with <laughs> Francois Goodman and um, uh, uh, Reinhard Budikofer, uh, which was... I'm not going to pretend it's from the top of my head, but I, I just looked at my phone on a Spotify account. It's episode 14, Europe bows to Pax Sinica with Reinhard Budikofer yeah. and Francois Goodman, but and, I'm not going to pretend that was on the top of my head. But that episode was came on the heels of an investment agreement that the EU rushedly signed with China just yeah. as Biden was coming in, into office without, yeah. without That's alerting uh, the Biden administration that it was doing that. So in, in the end, the EU backtracked, but yes, that's a good point. Yeah. So, and, and they did that. They, they did that. Trump was still technically in office. Biden still hadn't come in. Yeah. And they rushed it over Christmas. Yeah. Again, American companies and European companies are being uh, similarly treated by ch the Chinese state in China. Uh, why are America and, and Europe not mounting a common front against uh, industrial espionage, uh, mm. intellectual property theft? I mean, when you're a company, whether you're European or American, when you're a company operating in China, you are uh, you are uh, vulnerable to some of the worst kinds of economic abuse. You you are you are vulnerable to being spied upon. Your intellectual property can be uh, stolen from you, uh, and you you can b barely even sue uh, the government over that because they, there's essentially no rule of law. And um, why Europe and America are not tackling this as a as a as a as a united front is just beyond my my comprehension. Well, I mean, part of it stems from the fact that the United States and Europe have different goals and relations when it comes to China. So for a lot of European companies, and I know we'll talk about this in a little bit, China is essentially just a big export market for some of the goods that it manufactures, um, as well as a source of investment um, and vice versa. For the United States, which is both a Pacific and an Atlantic power, whereas Europe although some of its countries have Pacific territories. European countries aren't Pacific powers. It's the United States and China that are. So for the US, there is an yeah. economic and a security dimension that is just heightened by its geography and the nature of its relationships. Yeah. Um, Europe doesn't have to face that dilemma. And it's sort of been floated. If you look at the way Europe reacted to the initial Russian incursions in its neighborhood, and how much it took for Europe to actually come together with a forceful response. Would they do the same thing if China were to attack Taiwan? The answer, if you ask most Americans, is they probably wouldn't do much. Um, it would be the United States carrying the water again on that front. And if you're thinking it from a strategic standpoint, the United States has to put China front of mind because that's what China is focusing on. It's focusing on US influence in the Indo-Pacific. Um, the Indo-Pacific comes first in yeah. the US national security strategy. Europe doesn't. And so I think it would yeah. be great if they could work together on China, but they just have such disparate interests and Europe isn't as involved in the Pacific. So it's not going to treat it as much as a security threat as it will an investment opportunity. Yeah, and I agree. It's, it's two different uh, political and strategic cultures. 
um, America is engaged in great power competition with China. Um, you know, we are comparable to what we saw between Sparta and Athens, if you want to go back um, to Thucydides. Um, and, and Europe isn't, you know. Europe is, first of all, a collection of different nation states. Uh, some of them still have somewhat global ambitions, like France, for example. Most of them don't. So the entire relationship to it is, is to China is obviously going to be uh, very different. Obviously, you know, the, the stories you were talking about, Jorge, about, about espionage, about um, all those kind of difficulties that European companies face in China do exist. But unlike America, where even the, the business elites decided it was time to rock the boat a little bit, I don't think the European business elites are quite there yet. There is some debate and they do realize these things are going on, but they aren't willing to go that far. And the political elites aren't willing to go that far in all European states, at least. But um, this is this is where the, the, the conversation is a little tricky at the moment, because uh, there is this new institution that I think the Atlantic Council actually uh, imagined this new institution, which is now becoming quite central in transatlantic relations, which is the um, it's called the TTC, the Trade and Technology Council, uh, which is becoming this big forum for discussion on you know, a lot of issues. It goes from uh, you know all the conversations we are having on on tech at the moment, uh, all the, the subsidies conversation, and what's quite interesting is. Um, from one my, my understanding is that European diplomats want to talk about many issues and the Americans always bring it back to China um, and which kind of created kind of a little uncomfortable situation where um, you know the Europeans have other issues they want to talk about and somehow you know the Americans always bring it back to China and you can really see this as you know the kind of strategic focus of America at the moment and um, you know yeah here it is this is um this is a quote. This is a quite funny quote I found in Politico. Uh, in theory, the TTC, so that's the Trade and Technology Council, is not about China. But in practice, every discussion with the US is. If we talk about with if we talk with Catherine Tay about Burger King, it has an anti-China effect. So in other words, you know, they can't avoid this conversation. It's, it's sticky, it's 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 everywhere. Um and yeah, because then you reach a kind of uncomfortable conclusion that the, the trip, Macron's trip in, in, in D.C. is going to bring at best minimal change, if any change at all. And, you know, it's you, you wonder who's deceiving who, you know, is Macron uh, purposely kind of putting on a, um, a bright, a bright face saying, you know, we, we, we got we got our concessions or did Biden overpromise on his side? Um, yeah. Either way, it's not. I don't think we're, we're gonna we're gonna find we're gonna find out soon. It's going to be a, a tough moment for either one of uh, either Biden or Macron. I mean, so you know, the U.S. I mean, obviously, China is the number one country that U.S. security officials talk about. Uh, in Europe, I guess it's Russia, but they've only recently started to talk about it as an adversary. Um, so the U.S. has been trying to sort of push other countries in the direction of seeing China as a threat. And, you know, we've seen gradual movement in this direction with the NATO um, strategic concept outlining China as a challenge. And you're starting to see other world leaders refer to China as a challenge or, you know, something that challenges the world order. And so you're seeing that gradual movement in that direction. Um, but again, the US has been 
on this path. Really, I know it's sort of it's overplayed as being it started under Trump. It didn't actually start under Trump. It started under the first term of Obama with the pivot to Asia that was principally focused on establishing economic leadership in the Pacific and confronting a rising China. That was the pivot to Asia and TPP. Well, there was supposed to be it was supposed to be a dual access because you were going to have TPP in the Pacific and TTIP uh, with the EU. That got derailed, obviously, by both sides. You know, I'm not going to um, say it was known, but you know, TPP was taken out by the US Congress and TTIP by both sides not being able to reconcile the differences. And really, the US has been trying to get the EU to see China as a threat ever since. Um, and we're just not seeing that breakthrough, really, with the exception, possibly, of in the UK, uh, even though Sunak is a bit softer on China compared to his predecessors. Um, but in the, US, in the UK, the security establishment is much more anti-China um, yeah. than the rest of you. And so this brings us to um, two important diplomatic visits that happened recently. The first one being uh, last month, where Olaf Scholz went to uh, Beijing. And now, only yesterday, Charles Michel, president of the European Council, was also in China. And um, you went there to piss off one oh, Yes, okay. Uh, p- please explain that. Um, that's quite a funny way to, to put it. Okay, so for, for followers of Brussels politics, um, one of the weirdest things about the EU is that it has three presidents the parliament president, yeah. the commission president, and the council president. And the parliament president isn't really relevant to this discussion. Yeah. Really, there's always been a big, well, I wouldn't say fight. There's been a friendly rivalry between the council president, who represents the head of state, and the commission president, um, who sets the policy direction. That mm-hmm. has been blown up this term by the fact that Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, has quite a narrow circle of advisors and has had to take a lot of control because of the pandemic and now the war in Russia, uh, the war with Russia in Ukraine. And the council president, which typically had been one of the leading, um, had been the leading role. Donald Tusk played a vital role in the Brexit negotiations and the fallout from that. Um, and Charles Michel, the Belgian, former Belgian prime minister, now council president. I'm going to keep mixing these up. Um, he and Van der Leyen do not... Don't worry, everybody confuses them. It, it, it's, yeah. it's part of a game. Yeah. Michelle and Von der Leyen do not get on. And this partly stems from an incident in Turkey where Von der Leyen had to literally sit on the couch while Michelle held a bilateral with President Erdogan, some Turkish mischief causing trouble in the EU. Um, and the rivalry has essentially blown up since then. So Michelle, in an effort to bolster his credentials on the world stage... Um, went to China to talk about a number of issues, um, but mostly to bolster his image on the world stage as a leading European voice, where von der Leyen couldn't really go to China um, because it would just sort of look bad given her other previous relationships um, with the European and global heads of state. Uh, Nominally, the reason of his visit was, well, the most important uh, item on the agenda was for China to use its influence on Russia to end the war in Ukraine. Um, but it seems hard to imagine that happening as much as China isn't massively a fan of war in Ukraine. It seems tough to imagine that would actually actively pressure Russia into ending the war in Ukraine. Um, and it creates kind of weird timing as well, because obviously everybody knows there's been quite a lot of tension in China recently of the COVID restrictions. And so Michel made a comment about how you know, need to make sure that there's a human right to uh, to meet specifically, which you know kind of has a strong connotation given the context. 
and at the same time, a few only a few weeks ago, um, there was this kind of famous strategic discussion where we define China as a rival, a partner, and and something a competitor. Um, so yeah, it kind of creates a weird meeting where I'm not quite sure what what came out of it um, during this meeting. Yeah, can can I just sorry. Uh, I... I wonder if uh, either of you wants to uh, uh, go a little deeper, but I think Julian got into something really interesting there that I think goes to show that even though the Treaty of Lisbon conferred significant powers to the EU's executive, namely the European Commission, on foreign policy, the reality is that other world powers still look to the council for the EU's diplomacy. I mean, if you go back to Nixon's uh, old uh, sort of dictum of uh, who, who do I call if, I'm, if I want to if I want to um, if I want to get on the phone with, with Europe? Uh, the answer that most countries are giving to that question is still to the to this day uh, the Council and uh, Charles Michel in in this particular case. But Josep uh, Borrell, even though he is uh, in name only sort of the lead uh, the 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 Europe's diplomatic lead, the reality is that Charles Michel is actually uh, I mean, he gets to um, sort of uh, shepherd uh, the uh, negotiations between member states, and when there is a, a resolution coming out of the of the European Council, he's sort of the point man when uh, the Council yeah. is is debating these issues. So I'm I'm not surprised that uh, he is uh, he's been he's given uh, sort of more uh, uh, credibility. But perhaps a more substantial diplomatic visit to China wasn't Charles Michel's visit, but for one that happened a month ago. Um, from Olaf Scholz, who, who, who went to, to Beijing. And uh, here's a, a quote from our friend Reinhard Butikofer, saying this is the most controversial, uh, debated visit in the country for the last 50 years. So that's a good friend, the Green MEP, Reinhard Butikofer, weighing in on that visit. Um, it, it was kind of weird timing as well, because you know, the entire t- he went alone with any other European um, partners when you know Macron wanted to make sure that on those issues was kind of united front, he went on loan. And it ties in with an op-ed he just wrote um, in, for, in Foreign Affairs, um, which is quite interesting. I think Julian had some quite quite interesting thoughts about it. Maybe just walk us through what he what he claims in his article about the global uh, Zeitenwend, um, how to avoid a new Cold War in a multipolar era. Um, what's his case and uh, why is it interesting? So this article, which is, I mean, it's technically coming out in the January, February edition of Foreign yep. Affairs magazine. Um, it outlines the challenge as Germany sees it presented by principally uh, the consequence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how Germany has been working to build peace in Europe prior to the invasion and how it will look to build peace after uh, the war in Ukraine. So there's a bit of forward-looking components in that, um, which are quite interesting to see Schultz. And he made some comments at a security conference recently as well, talking about how Russia needs to be part of the uh, security architecture in Europe as well. And I think one thing that really stood out to me is that towards the end, and it is very much buried at the end of this of this essay, which is very much worth a read, and we'll attach it in the um, episode notes, um, yeah. is that he outlines the the challenge posed by China and he doesn't subscribe to the idea that we're on the brink of a new Cold War or that we're in a new Cold War between the United States and, and China, which is what a lot of realist um, foreign policy scholars have been saying for quite a while now. Yeah. The US and China are very much engaged. And he does talk about his visit to Beijing and he talks about 
really the need that to to continue to not isolate Beijing, um, but not curbing cooperation either. Um, and so it's very much angled towards econo- continued economic engagement, but asking China to treat European and Chinese companies equally, which anyone who has read anything on Xi Jinping's domestic policy or a speech at the recent party congress knows is not going to happen. But he does talk about the things that he raised as well, such as concerns in the Taiwan Strait, as well as the lack of respect for rights and freedoms in China. And he rejects the Chinese interpretation that human rights are internal matters, um, none of which is very groundbreaking. And that's why I think this essay is quite interesting, because it's supposed to talk about a new approach and a new way of seeing things. And really, yeah. me, this reads as just more of the same. Um, yeah. uh, he doesn't want to confront China. He doesn't want to isolate China. Germany can't afford to. And he's rejecting the idea that Europe and Germany must choose between a US world and a Chinese world and trying to sort of have a third path of engaging with both, which as we have seen historically, doesn't particularly work out well. But that's just some talk well, yeah. on the essay, um, which has yeah. a lot of interesting notes that we should probably talk about another time. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to it. I think there's a there's probably maybe a podcast episode in, in that essay alone. Yeah. And um, then, so I was just going to like add on to this. Yeah. And I, I think another thing that's interesting that wasn't mentioned, but it was mentioned in the coverage of the Schultz trip, is that Schultz has, despite the explicit rejection of all explicit arguments of his coalition partners in the Green and Liberal parties in, um, in Germany, um, he allowed Chinese investments in a Hamburg harbor. So the same sort of strategic investments yeah. in critical infrastructure that Germany and especially the Social Democrats have been criticized for allowing, but from Russia, this time it's from the Chinese. Um, and again, this was an issue where the United States had said, don't allow this investment. And Germany's proceeded with it anyway. And it's been Schultz pushing for it, um, despite broader public opposition and indeed political opposition from his nominal allies. Yeah. Um, what, what you were saying about how this essay is actually not a new policy, but kind of a continuation of, of what was before, really makes me think of a joke uh, during COVID, where seemingly everybody had his worldview, worldview reinforced by the past few months of COVID, you know. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, liberals were right to be a, liberals, conservatives were right to be conservative, protectionists were right, uh, free traders were right, everybody was right, and just, uh, you know, everybody looks for confirmation. But it also says a lot about, you know, how political, strategic cultures really never really change, you know, or they change very, very slowly. Because I was reading it as well, and exactly, I was exact, thinking exactly the same thing, you know. Um, the only difference is, you know, rather than living in a multipolar world, you're now living in kind of an increasingly, I mean, at least on strategic, ter- strategic terms, a bipolar world. And you are now pretending you can make it uh, multipolar or that you can kind of avoid that confrontation. Um, I think given the current context, that is purposely naive, maybe, is one way to put it. Um, yeah, and it's, it's it's also a kind of bad vibe, you know. He's going alone. Um, I, I, I can't remember why I found that, but someone saying he was kind of in a... I think, I think one German MP said he was in an almost submissive stance towards China, um, you know, and, and a, f- a few weeks before the G20, um, G20 summit in Bali in Indonesia, it was just incredibly, incredibly odd. And no, I was just going to quickly add that I, I believe, do you believe Germany is working on a national, on a China security strategy? They're working on a lot of strategies because their entire worldview got ripped up on February 24th. 
So they're sort of recovering. Um, so it'll be interesting to know what comes from that. But at the moment, I'm skeptical that anything yeah. can change. Yeah, there's a there's a really interesting yeah. book uh, that we have discussed uh, right. off offline uh, on this podcast, yeah. uh, which is a book by um, two scholars okay. of the American Enterprise Institute. The book is called Danger Zone. And what it argues, uh, and the, the reason I think that the argument is relevant to Europe also, is that it says, look, your, uh, China and America may be locked into this century-long struggle for global hegemony. But in reality, that struggle is really going to play itself out in the next 10 years. The winner is going to come out of the next 10 years, not, not of the next 100 years, even though that's what we're racing towards. But really, the next 10 years are going to be the um, the danger. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, and I, I just I just I just wonder whether, you know, what what European leaders are responding to that, what role they want to play. I mean, in the long run, they would still ideally like, I mean, most EU leaders are, are still sort of um, um, subservient to the view that China can rise peaceably and sort of join the, the rules-bound world order um, and that the, the, there, there doesn't necessarily be that sort of clash. Uh, Whereas I think the, the the real opposition to China in Europe is coming from the parliament, where you have a lot of opposition to, say, the on human rights grounds, to the treatment of the Uyghurs, the the treatment of the of Hong Kong, etc. But in terms of the uh, intergovernmental ballgame, the governments of the EU, I don't see really who can sort of confront the fact that China is upending the the rules based world order. Well, you know, if you're going to make the devil's advocate case um i know a lot of people cringe when they hear the devil's advocate case but let's go with it um leaders of european countries are elected to defend their national interest at least in the short term it's not obvious to me that a world a not chinese dominated world but a a world in which china has growing influence is going to be automatically bad for business, at least in the short term. Um, and, and it's hard to know. So, I mean, like, you know, there's all these democratic pressures to, 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 to make sure the economy is running well. Um, and, you know, these politicians are here for two, three, four, five, five years. And so, and, you know, for, you know, the fact that, you know, I don't know, Denmark or, or the Czech Republic, decides to play full balance of power and curtail the rise of Chinese influence. Let's face it, in the run of things, it's not going to change that much. Um, so, no, and where I think the, 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 this idea breaks down a little bit is then medium term, the consequences can be uh, quite dramatic, not only for human rights, but also, you know, for... for for you know, like the economic balance of power between the EU and China, but there is that case to be made, and it's you know you're you're, you're elected to represent the people of Poland or Denmark. You're not represent. You're not here to be to elect to. You're not elected by a kind of a, a global council who wants to play global balance of power or by the the people of of I don't know of somewhere else. You're elected to represent your own people. Um, it's funny you mentioned the what the people think Jim? so i do i think i'm trying to find it specifically but i do know in 2019 there was a report and it was done by the european council on foreign relations it said that 57 percent of europeans felt their country's economy and the wider european economy 
was being insufficiently protected by lawmakers from Chinese trade practices. And that was a fairly consistent finding across yeah. uh, the European Union. And there is another one. I'm going to have to That's find true. it later and we'll bring it up a different day. But you know, I, I, I just think this is a disconnect between... Yeah. No, there's definitely been a, a on a, in Europe when yeah, it comes to Chinese policy or approaches to China. Um, but it's it's a very good point. I I agree yeah, with you, like and to... I think there's also a lot of kind of needlessly antagonistic diplomacy from China in Europe, which for really no no tangible benefits. You know, the entire war for re-diplomacy has really created a lot of tension with European countries when really didn't serve much strategic purpose to be. That aggressive, um, and I agree with you. Opinion has uh, turned against China quite quite drastically in the past four or five years. But then there's also the reality, kind of uh, tension between principles and you know, economic reality. And I think most people would say that. But you know, if that means there's going to be a considerable material hit in their daily lives, then maybe they'll rethink the, the, those criteria. But I agree with you. Indeed, the public opinion is turning on um, against China in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, but then again, you know, you, you only need one or two countries to be blocking the entire process at the EU level. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're, it's essentially kind of a, a... And this is something I was thinking about, actually. When we did our episode on Poland uh, a few weeks ago, um, and this is, you know, the, the Poles were, you know, have this experience of how democracy, or at least the kind of weird system they had at the time, could be used by outside powers to block the entire system. And so the Poles have this kind of very uh, this vision of the EU as being some kind of commonwealth where outside powers, be it Russia or be it China, can employ one or two actors to block the entire system and have complete political paralysis. Um, so I just thought that analogy was quite interesting because, uh, you know, if you're China, you realistically, if you want to block things, you only need, you know, the, the, the backing of one or two countries and then the whole process uh, grinds to a screeching halt. You can just say hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so sorry to my Hungarian friends. Um, great. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up unless either one of you want to bounce back on what was just well, said. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, because I've been very harsh on Olaf Scholz, I'm going to say one thing in his defense in his essay, which is that, you, you know, you talked about the unanimity principle. And one thing that he specifically mentions is that the EU should change its approach to foreign policy, collective foreign policy decisions away from unanimous decision towards qualified majority voting or a variant thereof. And I think that's a really interesting morsel for the future that might change the way yeah. Europe deals with the world. Okay. Well, that's a, a good place to, to end on. Uh, thanks a lot, Julian. Thanks a lot, Jorge. Um, if you want to listen to the full episode, you can uh, subscribe on our Patreon account right now. And um, we want to thank our patron who've been doing a remarkable work in supporting us over the past few weeks. And uh, yeah, if you want to help without joining us on Patreon, don't worry, we understand. Times are tough, but you can do plenty of small things, such as rating the podcast on Apple Podcasts, for example, on Spotify, sharing it with friends, liking it, whatever way you, small way you can do to help would be greatly appreciated by everyone here at Uncommon Decency. Thanks to both of you and see you all next week.